The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. The Fulani, they're a big tribe all over West Africa. We certainly have two or three Fula listeners among our audience in the Gambia and Nigeria, but I'm thinking more of uh, Benin up north near the Niger border uh, and the uh, twice-annual Sharo Festival. Sharo means flogging. It's the big flagellation jubilee in which young men, as part of their rite of passage, have to endure public whippings. And if they can't take the public whippings, it brings great shame on their families. Oh, I tell you what, why don't we have a traditional flagellation song from uh, Northern Benny? <laughs> Yeah, that's one of my favorite flagellation songs from the Fulani uh, on this first week end of June 2020, shaping up to be a long, hot summer. I play the old uh, flagellation uh, smash hit because uh, while a Westerner visiting Benin might think a flagellation ceremony a sign of a primitive society, a Fula villager visiting America might regard the nationwide self-flagellation as just as primitive and rather more psychologically unhealthy. Watching police chiefs and even National Guardsmen take a knee before street mobs is more than disturbing. What municipal PR rep signed off on that visual? Colin Kaepernick takes a knee on grass in a stadium during a piece of music. That's quite a different image from police officers taking a knee six inches before groups of, quote, protesters demanding prostration before their cause. Unlike Kaepernick, these guys are kneeling before their masters. These are scenes from a revolution just before the Ancien Regime implodes. Snapshots from Iran as the Shah loses control. From Romania as local cops sent which way the wind is blowing. To see soldiers kneeling before the mob is particularly unnerving. We have learned over 20 years in Afghanistan that the most powerful military in the world, the sole hyperpower, cannot impress its will on goat herds with fertilizer. To see a showdown with trusty fundy anarchists play out the same way within minutes is humiliating. As my distinguished compatriot Kate McMillan likes to say, pleasing your enemies does not turn them into friends. The Minneapolis City Council is now considering abolishing the Minneapolis Police Department. Ward 3 Council Member Steve Fletcher says it is, quote, irredeemably beyond reform. On Wednesday, the Minneapolis Park and Recreation Board voted unanimously to end its contract with the police, preventing them from policing park events and restricting their recognition as police officers within the 
the parks. The day before, the Minneapolis School District terminated its contract with the coppers because, quote, they do not meet our values and therefore we will have no business with this organization. The University of Minnesota has likewise cut its ties with the Minneapolis PD. They will no longer be permitted to police sports games and other events. The Defund the Police movement is picking up steam from New York to Los Angeles. New York State Senator Julia Salazar wants to defund the police. These cities are all Democrats. She's a Democrat. Everyone in this dispute is a Democrat. For decades, the police chiefs have been appointed by Democrats and supervised by Democrats. There are no Republicans in sight. Aisha Gomez, a state representative in the Minnesota legislature, says, Beloved community, this is why we talk about police abolition. There is no reform that can fix this system. No training or body camera or coaching or diversification effort or outside investigation or toothless oversight body that can fix this. The rot in police departments is the rot in our political and social systems, crystallized and heavily armed. It is a reflection of our country, built on the enslavement of African people and the genocide and dispossession of native people, reliant on exploited immigrant labour to enforce the racialized social order and help the powerful accumulate wealth. The police exist to uphold this social order with deadly force. Now, as longtime Stein Online readers know, I find many aspects of American policing, the culture of American policing, the philosophy, incompatible with a free society. I'm not one of these knee-jerk conservatives whose skepticism about big government suddenly vanishes once you give, uh, to modify uh, Kathy Schadel, uh, the government bureaucrats a badge and a gun. So I make this point not to defend the old order, but to note how fast the new order is coming in. Conservatives are always blindsided by these developments because they're busy working on Paul Ryan's proposed capital gains tax cut, or whatever was the priority for those lost two years from 2017 to 2019. But just the day before yesterday, abolishing the police was an utterly fringe position. Now it's the policy goal of congressmen, state representatives, city councillors and municipal agencies. Taking a knee was likewise a fringe position. It's not a small thing. As I said, when Colin Kaepernick started doing it, the understanding that one stands for a national anthem is the minimal social glue required to have a nation. So once you've given that up, you might as well pack it in. But even those defending Kaepernick, mainly on free expression grounds, did not actually take a knee themselves. Now it's happening in the streets every night. You're a bad person if you're not prepared to take a knee before the mob. In the event that Governor Murphy or Governor Whitmer ever permits a large-scale sporting event ever again, will it be conditioned on mandatory knee-taking? Uh, there are, after all, public health grounds. Bellowing your national anthem with pride is a high-risk COVID activity full of Justin Trudeau moistliness. Dropping to your knee and refusing to endanger your fellow Americans by warbling all that infectious stuff about the land of the free uh, is the safer option. The Attorney General, Bill Barr, is pledging to pull the Fed's most crack agents off 
whatever it is they've been doing these last few years, the investigation of the last investigation into the previous investigation. There are extremist agitators who are hijacking the protests to pursue their own separate and violent agenda. We have evidence that Antifa and other similar extremist groups, as well as actors of a variety of different political uh, persuasions, have been involved in instigating and participating in the violent activity. Antifa, they're terrorists, anarchists, violent, sure, but they're not the problem here. The problem here is a massive cultural shift. It's not Antifa, Antifa skulking in the shadows, the Antifa narrative of American irredeemable iniquity has gone mainstream to the point where any Antifa operative who has the misfortune to get arrested will be bailed out by a movie star of the Biden campaign. All the fashionable advertisers have dropped their frankly miserable and mawkish COVID commercials with the treacly Richard Clayderman piano music drooling about how we're all united together in favour of advertising their solidarity with the protesters on one side of a cultural fault line. As responsible progressive businessmen who've outsourced their entire production line to child slave labor in Wuhan, they're now all about the social justice of this flawed racist society. America, that is, not China. China isn't a flawed racist society. It's a brilliantly, efficiently run racist society. Brian, a Mark Stein club member from the West Coast and a very convivial cruiser, on the Mark Stein cruise, if we're ever allowed to hold such an event again. Uh, Brian writes, less convivially, within the past few days, I've received a spate of self-flagellating email announcements, literally from A to Z companies, Alaska Airlines to Zagat, and or their CEOs announcing how committed they are to improving our unjust and flawed society. Just a coincidence? I suspect they think they know which way the wind is blowing. People are losing their jobs right and left for wrong think, even after making abject public apologies. It's all reminiscent of what one imagines to be the fate of North Koreans who cheer dear leader insufficiently as his limo passes. That's true, Bran. Don't tweet that all lives matter. Because even if Twitter doesn't cancel you for hate speech, you'll get fired as just happened to NBA announcer Grant Napier. He lost his livelihood because he said that utterly contemptible statement, all lives matter. His doesn't, so he's out, he's gone. To talk yet again about our bifurcated society, the bifurcation is getting more extreme. Governor Whitmer of Michigan sent the state to war against a 77-year-old barber who wanted needed to keep his business open uh, in order to hold body and soul together. She, she went to war against him because him cutting your hair was literally endangering the lives of others, according to the state of Michigan. Yesterday, Governor Whitmer was out and about taking a knee. That's right, governors are taking knees now. Taking a knee, knee to knee, in fact, with no social distancing, surrounded by unmasked persons, all down on their knees, paying homage to George Floyd. On last night's episode of our current tale for our time, G.K. Chesterton's novel The Man Who Was Thursday, 
I read his passage on, quote, visions from the verge, uh, the way, as he puts it, the ends of the earth are closing in, squeezing out anything in between. That's the choice uh, for members of the non-looting community in America today. On the one hand, you can sign on to everything the mob's doing, even if you don't want to do it yourself. Uh, you go out and take a non-socially distant knee in the street. You put Black Lives Matter in the window of your store and on your website. You look the other way when the store gets burned down anyway, because America is the most horrible society that has ever existed, and we need to get rid of it all and start again in year zero, just like Pol Pot did to such effect in Cambodia. On the other hand, if that's all a bit strong meat for your tastes, then you wear a mask, stand within your painted lines on the sidewalk if you want a decaf latte, and agree to let your loved ones die alone and be shoveled into the ground without a funeral. These are the choices. Anarchy or the micro-regulation of every aspect of human existence. Where's the neither of the above box? Jazz, Frank Sinatra, good old-fashioned rock and roll. Fill your ears with all sorts of music curated by Mark Stein himself at Stein Online. The music plays on at Stein Online through exclusive Mark Stein show performances. There's a kind of hush all over the world tonight. Biographies of great performers and songwriters and Mark's On the Town audio specials. Are we really happy with this lonely game we play? Chuck Berry to Cole Porter, Ted Nugent to Johnny Mercer. New specials added regularly. Put some records on by heading over to www.steinonline.com music. Mark Stein's Poem of the Week. There is a whiff of revolution in the air and of bloodlust, too. Usually there's uh, a time lag between those two things, between the idealistic phase and the descent into terror. With the French Revolution in 1789, the great poets were very taken by it, and we quote them still in such contexts. Wordsworth, in The Prelude, speaks for the youth on the streets as he always does. Bliss was it in that dawn to be alive, but to be young was very heaven. Then came the reign of terror, which gave some of the revolution's supporters pause, although Coleridge attempted to argue that this was just a cloud of momentary aberration uh, and the storm would pass and the ship of freedom would sail on. And it was only the invasion of Switzerland in 1798 that finally soured him on French revolutionary violence. Forgive me, freedom. Oh, forgive those dreams. I hear thy voice. I hear thy loud lament from bleak Helvetia's icy caverns sent. I hear thy groans upon her blood-stained streams. But, uh, in a sense, these poets are too good and uh, too poetical for what's going on. I mentioned during our serialization of the Scarlet Pimpernel, which is uh, well worth listening to in these times, uh, I mentioned the fate of the Princesse de Lambaye, confident of uh, Marie Antoinette, a, a petite lady dressed in white. The mob raped her, 
cut off her breasts, bludgeoned her skull with a pike staff, disemboweled her, chopped off her head, and paraded it through the streets on a pike with her decapitated naked body uh, following behind. They sold strands of hair from the head. The head was taken to a cafe where the cheering patrons toasted it. Once the mob gets a taste for blood, for heads on pikes, it's very difficult to wean them off it. So here's a piece on that very theme from a book I bought in a second-hand store when I was about 12 or so called Poems for the Poor. Uh, they're verses, really, not poetry at all, all very tumpty-tumpty. No one would argue that their author belongs in the same pantheon as Wordsworth and Coleridge, but they have the sense of a mob intoxicated by violence, drunk on depravity. Here's... Uh, the greater part of it, first published by Harrison and Sons in 1885 from Poems for the Poor by John Lawrence Longstaff under the nom de plume Peter Primrose, the song of the blood-red Republican. For a mad wild rout that is dancing about, we're behaving uncommonly well, though we deafen the street with laughter and shout, with drum and cymbal and bell, so footed Jeannot and tripped Jeannette, the music to dance to is good. The dance is of death, the best ever set, and the drink is the bluest of blood. For myself, I admit, I'm no cannibal yet. The idea is at present too fresh. But there are a good few who prefer a ragout of a juicy aristocrat's flesh. Then kick up Jeannot and caper Jeannette, the taste may be gained and it should. Today a young beauty wiped off a big debt by drinking her lover's heart's blood. Oh, terribly dry is the dull cold sky, and the dust is blindingly driven. But the liquid that drains from aristocrats' veins lays better than showers from heaven. So dance you, Jeannot, and dance you, Jeannette, let the hatchet and knife make a flood. Let us cut up a duke while we pirouette and stick a prince of the blood. Can you ask why we slay this lord of today? Dull seems your intelligence, rather. Committed no crime? Oh, hang it, I say. Why, the man is the son of his father. Then gamble, Jeannot, and frolic, Jeannette. Any day you can dabble in mud. Tis but once in a lifetime the chance you may get to soak in aristocrats' blood. A new manufactory flourishes near, the finest of leather they tan. Not cowhide or pigskin or chamois is here. The hides are of woman and man. Then footed Jeannot and tripped Jeannette, and off to the tannery scud from a duchess's skin the best leather you get when cleansed of aristocrats' blood. Dance gaily, dance daily from morning to night, with trophies entwine every head. Drain still the rich liquor with frenzied delight, and drunken, disdain yourselves red. Yes, dance you, Jeannot, and dance you, Jeannette, far wilder than Bacchus's brood. For there crimsons, intoxicates, maddens you yet. Not the grape, but aristocrats' blood. A poem from Me to You by John Lawrence Longstaff. And in today's America, you don't have to own a chateau to be an aristocrat. You can be merely a storekeeper. 
perhaps of a despised barber shop or nail salon, and you are guilty not because, as the poem said of the world of 1793, you are the son of your father, but because you are the great-great-great-great-grandson of someone who possibly owned a slave, or maybe even the great-great-great-great-grandson of someone who went to war against the guy who owned a slave, or maybe the great-great-great-great-grandson of someone who was living in Eastern Europe or Polynesia at the time, or maybe you're the great-great-great-great-grandson of an actual slave and Trump improved the economy so you were caught on the street in a MAGA hat, or you're a 77-year-old black cop, a 22-year-old black woman. Against the new revolutionaries, we are all aristocrats now. Mark's mailbox is on the air. Wanda Sherratt writes from Ottawa, the beautiful capital of the beautiful Dominion of Canada. And Wanda says, I don't know how long we can keep calling this the new normal. I call it the permanent abnormal because none of this is normal and never will be, no matter how long we are forced to do it. I just read that a Harvard study recommends wearing masks during sex to avoid catching the woo flu while pitching woo. I have an uneasy feeling that some parts of society are just settling down to the prospect of wearing masks and standing in little rectangles drawn on the floor for the rest of their lives. I'd like to know if any society in the history of mankind has ever survived under these stringent social conditions. Maybe a medieval monastery somewhere, but I don't think it can scale up from there. I don't like those rectangles either, Wanda. I'm not a big fan of uh, painted lines when you land at a U.S. airport and you wait to go up to the booth to show the Department of Bollocks your passport, there's a yellow line and a sign saying you have to wait behind the yellow line and if your toe strays an inch over it or even onto it, the guy yells at you. This is uh, obviously the complete moronization of public policy. The actual line... The actual frontier, the southern border, has been dissolved. It doesn't exist and immigration law doesn't apply. You can cross that one with impunity. But instead there's an ersatz frontier painted along the arrivals hall. And that ersatz frontier, the painted line, is inviolable. That kind of idiocy used to just be confined to the airport. But under the TSAification of every aspect of life that has happened these last three months and now applies if you want to get a cup of coffee to go from Starbucks. The permanent abnormal, as Wanda says, rendered even more absurd by one man's death in a peripheral city. When I, no disrespect to uh, any of our Minnesota listeners, uh, when I serialized The Time Machine three years ago, if you haven't heard it, it's there on our Tales for Our Time homepage. When I serialized the book, I said the only thing H.G. Wells got wrong was the date of his dystopia, 802,701 A.D. Uh, Wells was off by a mere 800,680 years because the Eloi and the Morlocks showed up early. On the one hand, the Eloi are so fearful and risk-averse that they stand masked in a painted rectangle to get a piece of takeout pizza. On the other hand, the Morlocks are so fearless... Uh, that they're willing to risk our entire civilizational inheritance. The risk aversion revealed by COVID um, is uh, interesting to me. Um, 
and I'll explore it a little more in depth next week. But the juxtaposition that's been going on the last week is insane and best exemplified uh, by those nations that have been most compliant these last three months. For example, the United Kingdom, where on the whole, most of the citizenry have been either well disposed or indifferent to the lockdown. Until, that is, the death of George Floyd in a city most Britons, even if they've heard of it, couldn't find on a map. Think about that. You didn't protest the lockdown when they said you could only go out once a day for exercise. You didn't protest the lockdown when they said you couldn't sit on a park bench because sitting is not exercising. You didn't protest the lockdown when they said Granny had the COVID but you couldn't go and visit her. You didn't protest the lockdown when they said Granny's kicked the bucket but you're not allowed to hold a funeral for her. Only when some guy in another country dies 4,000 miles away do you think, ah, screw the lockdown and go join the big protest and then you hurry back home to find oh you're now permitted to bury granny but only four people can attend because any more would be totally irresponsible and lethal this is so weird and it wouldn't work if there were not an element of supine compliance in both um and i'm not singling out uh the UK in this uh, any more than I'm singling out continental Europe or New Zealand or anywhere else. Uh, But the supine compliance is what binds uh, both these narratives. You can't mourn granny at St. Bede's Church because the state says so. But you have to mourn this dead guy from 4,000 miles away because the culture The media, the pop stars, the haute couture stores all say so. And in fact, they go beyond that and say, you bear the blame for his death. In Ireland, Mr. Varadkar's ministry won't let you travel more than three miles from home, yet you somehow manage to kill some bloke 4,000 miles away. What unites these incompatible narratives in fear, and I don't mean fear of a strange new infectious disease, Uh, For three months, every Thursday at the appointed hour, the population of the United Kingdom has gone out on its doorstep to clap for the National Health Service. I like to think that if I'd been in Britain, I wouldn't have bothered because it's uh, creepy and totalitarian and I'd rather lie on the floor listening to my hair grow. But those who've declined to join in have been publicly shamed by their neighbours as heartless and uncaring. Likewise with those who dissent from the received line on George Floyd. Stalin, it turns out, was wrong when he said one death is a tragedy, a million is a statistic. Your granny's death is a statistic, even though she was your granny. You knew her, you loved her, you sat on her knee. She took you to see Anita Harris and Danny LaRue in Jack and the Beanstalk. Ah, screw her. The death of this guy 4,000 miles away in a town you've never heard of is the only officially mandated tragedy. An unconfident society prioritises safety and security. Hilaire Belloc, always keep a hold of nurse for fear of finding something worse. Until we reach the point in which our fear is such that nurse can order us to stand in a painted rectangle for a cup of coffee, and we comply. Mark Stein's Last Call. 
We are told that the Wuhan virus afflicts mainly the old. But how old do you have to be to be old? In this space, we have saluted fallen punk rockers from the 70s and new wave popsters from the 80s who suddenly found they were old wave. Now COVID comes a call in for boy bands from the new millennium. Hey, what's up? My name is Chris Truesdale, and this is my comeback. There's a party on the dance floor. Chris Truesdale was trying to come back and recapture a moment. What's up? This next song is a song called Sugar Rush. When he and four fellow adolescents set teenage hearts afloat. recognize me from the boy band Dream Street. It was a group back in the early 2000s that was basically made up of real boys. We were actual young boys that uh, sang and danced. <laughs> Most of the boy bands in those days were, you know, in their 20s and 30s, so we were really uh, we were really excited about being a real boy band and uh, we had some great successes. We had uh, an album that sold over a million records and uh, toured the country, and I had an amazing time with that. The boy band broke up too soon because of a legal dispute between the group's managers and the boy's parents. That's one of the hazards of managing a boy band. But for a while, it looked as if Chris Truesdale might have an afterlife. He made a film about a young pop star and his biggest fan, and he made a terrible leaden remake of a beloved song from Greece. broke up I knew I wanted to go solo and so did uh, the manager of the group Dream Street he was dead set on me being the breakout solo artist of the group and um, we worked really hard at it um, we I got signed to Columbia Records with Tommy Mottola um, unfortunately they wanted a new Dream Street so in order for me to go solo their only stipulation was okay we'll have him go solo but can he first be in another Dream Street and then we'll take him solo um, and my manager was thinking, I don't want to deal with those mothers again. He's like, I don't want another group. I want, you know, him to go solo. So we kind of fought back and forth with Tommy about it all. And then uh, Tommy got let go from Columbia. Um, so basically with him getting let go, I was let go. When it all starts to crumble, it crumbles very quickly. It's a tough thing to peak at 17. And that's a long time ago when you're pushing 30. This is my time, you know, so. Right, cool. And if you could give your fans <clears throat> or anyone watching any advice or words of wisdom, what would it be? I would definitely let them know that, that second chances come once in a lifetime and that 2014 is going to be an amazing year. I'm so, so, so excited about it.
comeback never happened. He could make them love him, but he couldn't make them re-love him a decade later. Dead of the Chinese coronavirus, nine days shy of his 35th birthday, Chris Truesdale. 1962. Goal kick to Brazil. In this magnificent World Cup final. The World Cup final at the Estadio Nacional in San Diego. And so Brazil, once again, are the world champions of association football. Three goals to one, the winners over Czechoslovakia in a magnificent World Cup final. Four years later, Brazil set off for England to defend their title. Celio Tavera almost made the team, almost. He was the last man to be cut from that 1966 World Cup squad before they left for London. Celio had a fitful international career, but at that time Brazil were the most consistently impressive national team on the planet. And he would assuredly have played for his country far more often had he lived in any other jurisdiction. Instead, he had a terrific club career playing for Portuguesa Santista, Ponto Preta, Yabacara. Olá, começando mais um programa 10 minutos pela RCTV e hoje tendo o prazer, a satisfação de entrevistar o ex-jogador de futebol Célio Taveira. Célio, seja bem-vindo ao nosso programa, satisfação pelo conosco, viu? Olá, Paulo Neto. Para mim é uma grande satisfação, um prazer enorme estar junto com vocês e à disposição para qualquer pergunta que vocês queiram fazer. He scored a lot of goals. Here's one of them. Terminó uno a uno. Silvio, el gol para Nacional. Y a fondo nos metemos en los recuerdos. Uno a uno, un empate. Rayados y bolsilludos. El viejo placar de la tribuna Amsterdam. Celio put 100 balls in the back of the net for Vasco da Gama. He's their 16th top goal scorer of all time. He scored 22 goals in the Copa Libertadores, the top competition for South American clubs. That makes him the third highest Brazilian goal scorer of all time. Dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 79. A great footballer, Celio Tavera. Dan Van Hoosen wasn't a footballer per se, but he was a fearsome presence in the BBC's FA Cup trailer a few years back. <laughs> Number 22, Manchester City. What a pity. Hey, Emil. <laughs> You'll never guess who we've got a nickel. <laughs> the FA Cup. Great drama from the BBC. As you can hear, he had a scary voice and he also had a compelling and memorable face. Born in Gummersbach near Cologne, Dan Van Hoosen was spinning platters in a Spanish discotheque when a couple of Italian producers happened to wander in and were very taken by the disc jockey's voice and visage. There followed a couple of dozen spaghetti westerns with Dan as the bad guy, and then came more famous directors, Fellini for Casanova, Werner Herzog for Nosferatu the Vampire, 
and eventually, somewhat late in life, Hollywood. Here he is in the Steven Spielberg, Tom Hanks production, Band of Brothers. Where are you? What? 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 Sie sind der Kommandant. Gehen Sie hinaus. Sie sind der Kommandant. Welcher Kommandant? Vom Arbeitslager. Ich weiß von keinem Arbeitslager. Na? Sie haben die falsche Person. Ja. Nein, nein. Son of a bitch. Shoot him. Shoot him! No. He was never above the title. But he was never out of work. He made his lines count, and the face and the delivery made every little scene a bit more interesting than it might have been, regardless of what language he was speaking. Man is a sexual animal, and his sexuality is intertwined with aggressive behavior. Without this release, this town would go rampant with rape, assault, and murder. I think of this place as a slight incision to bleed out a swelling infection. Well, isn't life a product of sin? I mean, what do you do when one of these joys is with child and she's supposed to just run up to some tree and the baby tear out of her? It is true. This is an unfortunate byproduct of sin. But I would not expect my girls to raise a bastard. Well, the only practical resolution is the elimination of the unborn. A very barbaric resort, but it's not debatable. Is it truly cruel to expose them to the wretchedness of this world? Are not all these unborn children now in the warming arms of their creator? Dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 75, a working actor for over half a century, Dan Van Hoosen. Before we close today's last call, Patrick Sullivan, a Mark Stein club member from Seattle, noticed the latest release from Hennepin County in Minnesota in the movable feast that is George Floyd's autopsy, in which the medical examiner now states that in a grand convergence of news stories, Mr. Floyd was corona positive. So, says Patrick... Mark can include George Floyd in his last call feature. Uh, well, I think I'll hold off till the next update, Patrick. It's unclear whether he died of COVID or merely with COVID. And we've been very strict about sticking to the former. However, if this were a novel or a movie, it would be a brilliant plot twist in which Mr. Floyd struggling to breathe, manages to afflict all those guys getting up close and personal with him in his final moments. I wonder if he's one of those super spreaders we hear about. I guess uh, we'll be finding out when we watch the uh, COVID statistics from Minnesota. As Walt Trimmer, 
A Stein clubber from Oregon says, Now we can just add the riot costs to the Chinese reparations tab. I'll be on Fox and Friends tomorrow morning across America if you're up bright and early. And on Monday, I'm in for rush for a full three hours. Hope you'll join me for one or the other. Stay safe, stay free. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. reserved.